Welcome back to The Long Short. Over the coming few months, we'll be bringing something a little different, the Perspective Series in partnership with KPMG. This podcast series will feature conversations with leading CEOs and founders of alternative investment firms from around the world. And today, we're excited to share with you one of a series of conversations we've had with them. Our guests share their visions on a variety of areas, including how to attract and retain top talent in the context of the fierce war for talent, as well as how to navigate the increasingly complex operational scaling challenges and much, much more. The discussions have been led by myself, Tom Kyo, co-host of Amos Long Short, and John Budzina, Managing Director and US National Leader for Market Development for Alternative Investments in KPMG. So sit back, we hope you'll enjoy the show, and thank you for joining us. Hey, Mark, uh, this is John Bazzina. Good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us today. You, you know, you currently run a, an investment firm out of Singapore. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and sort of how you came into finance to start with. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I was uh, born and bred in Singapore, uh, attended local school, uh, went to the UK for my university degree after spending two years in the Singapore Army as National Service. Uh, I did a degree in accountancy and law as I couldn't decide uh, which uh, profession I preferred. Uh, but my mind was quickly uh, made up when I landed an internship uh, with uh, JP Morgan Global Markets in my second year uh, summer holidays. And uh, during that time, my exposure to the markets uh, was so enriching that I decided to uh, pursue a career in finance. Um, so I, I spent my final year at university applying to uh, various uh, uh, banks uh, and uh, landed a, a, uh, a job with uh, Deutsche Bank uh, in London. I spent my initial years there and relocated to Singapore with Deutsche Bank shortly after the Asian financial crisis uh, broke out. Uh, and um, as they say, the rest is history. I spent uh, 17 years uh, at uh, Deutsche Bank trading uh, foreign exchange, uh, interest rate derivatives, uh, and uh, was overseeing the trading business in, in Asia uh, before moving to the buy side with Diamond. Uh, in 2013. And how did you come to join Diamond? Uh, yeah, the, that's a little uh, story to this. Um, Diamond was founded in 2008 and uh, founded by uh, Danny Yong, uh, who, who happened to, we, we went to the same primary school together. So primary school in Singapore, uh, we attend primary school from the years of, uh, we attend six years of primary school um, uh, uh, from the ages of uh, you know, 6 to, to 12, and I met Danny there, in, in, and, and we were really good friends in primary school, uh, and um, we studied in the same schools all the way till uh, my uh, pre-university days, and then we sort of um, lost touch uh, with each other. Uh, and then our paths crossed again when uh, we both entered uh, the uh, markets at the same time. Uh, and we kept in touch uh, you know, during the course of our careers. And then in 2012, uh, you know, Danny by then had founded uh, Diamond uh, for four years and he approached me and said, hey, you know, you've, um, uh, we're looking to grow the business. Uh, would you... Uh, join you know join join us uh, and, and help us uh, you know grow the business together uh, by then you know at that point in time having spent 17 years uh, at, at Deutsche Bank I thought uh, you know it was the right time for a change uh, and then um, decided that uh, it would be fun to uh, you know work with uh, you know a, a friend uh, and uh, decided to make the switch and of course you know that's a it's a remarkable career is there any specific defining moment for you or defining moments that you can cite as being extremely important to where you are now? I'd say a few, right? One would be at the very beginning uh, in making the decision to relocate uh, from London back to Singapore, uh, which, you know, really got me uh, uh, started uh, in, you know, the, the uh, Asian uh, markets. Uh, that, you know, that would be one. Uh, and then 
two is, uh, I'd say, midway through my stint uh, at Deutsche Bank, uh, I, I, um, I was actually contemplating um, uh, leaving the bank to do postgraduate studies. Uh, and um, upon you know, speaking to you know, a few uh, close friends, a few uh, um, uh, people I would, I would regard as you know, my advisors or mentors, uh, I, I essentially decided to uh, not move uh, and, and stay uh, in, in the bank. Uh, and um, uh, with that, you know, came, you know, more opportunities uh, and, uh, you know, uh, career growth. Uh, so really, really happy to uh, have decided to stay on. And then the third uh, defining moment, uh, I'd say, would be 10 years back uh, when you know, I decided to make this switch uh, from the sell side to, to you know, the buy side with Diamond. Uh, and it's been, uh, you know, a great, uh, enjoyable uh, journey uh, so far. Um, and um, Mark, in the 15 years, Diamond has grown to be one of the biggest hedge funds in the Asia-Pacific region. For the benefits of our listeners, could you provide an overview of the firm's hedge fund strategy? Yeah, sure. It's... Um, I, I, I talk about the uh, flagship uh, fund. Right? Our flagship fund is the multi-strategy uh, fund. Uh, it is a multi-strategy, multi-PM, Asia-focused hedge fund, uh, which invests across uh, asset classes. The main investment uh, strategies in this fund include equity long-short, macro, uh, and relative value. The bulk of our risk and returns are expressed and generated from uh, markets uh, within the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, and the, I'd say, biggest areas or re regions uh, of focus for us would be Greater China, uh, Japan, Korea, uh, India, uh, the Southeast Asian countries, uh, and uh, last but not least, Australia and New Zealand. So it's interesting because, you know, many firms now are uh, across the globe are embarking upon multi-strategy type structures um, as they roll out their investment strategies. And obviously yours is focused on the, you know, the, the APAC region. Um, so the, what was the decision to just focus on APAC as opposed to other parts of the world? Or, and, and then maybe you could just reflect on the multi-strategy uh, platform itself in terms of in terms of the ability to provide success to your investors. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, for us, the the decision was, uh, uh, I guess, an easy one, right? I'd say the DNA of uh, the firm is is Asia. You know, the the founders, the partners, you know, the our, our experience and expertise uh, have all been uh, gained uh, from our time. Uh, investing in in the markets in in, in Asia, uh, and um, you know we feel that uh, having an Asia focused uh, multi strategy fund uh, differentiates you know us uh, you know from from our peers or from our competitors, and we employ what I call a specialist model where you know every you know PM uh, has a special uh, area of uh, focus a unique area of focus. And our goal is to assemble a world-class team of uh, PMs who are specialists in uh, a certain region or asset class or strategies that they trade in, and thereby you know, creating a, a diversified portfolio that generates high quality and uncorrelated returns. You know, that, that, that's our overall uh, goal. So how then do the portfolio managers, and I read that you continue to recruit um, for the, the multi-strategy fund. How do they then decide about allocating to the fund? Uh, is it a consistent approach month on month or does it impact on geopolitical factors, macro environment, combination of all of those or something else? Capital allocation decisions uh, are top down by our investment committee. Uh, we meet every week uh, the investment committee we, uh, meets every week to discuss decisions around capital allocations, uh, be it at a country or strategy, 
and or a portfolio manager level. Uh, each portfolio manager is, is given a defined uh, investment mandate and, and risk capital based uh, on his or her area of, of specialty. The uh, portfolio manager PM then needs to deploy capital within the risk parameters set by the investment committee and the risk management team. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, we have a specialist model and every PM is selected because he or she plays a part or has a part to play in uh, the overall uh, fund portfolio. Now, what should be consistent is the PM's investment process. So, so whilst PMs may adjust their exposures based on you know, geo geopolitical macro factors or even other exogenous events, the essence of each specialist PM's strategy doesn't change. So in, in each of the portfolios, I would imagine there's a different amount of leverage that is deployed. Uh, is that stated at the outset or does that change on the week to week basis based upon your risk management parameters? How does that risk management um, change within the course of a, you know, a trading week or trading month? So I mentioned earlier that P, the PMs would, uh, would be given certain parameters to work uh, within uh, this, this risk management framework uh, is designed by or has been designed by the investment committee and implemented by uh, my risk management team. This framework includes uh, various forms of uh, drawdown and risk limits. For example, you know, we have concepts uh, like the peak to trough drawdown limit, uh, uh, Greek uh, exposure limits, liquidity and stress test limits. You know, all that is stated in this, this framework uh, that uh, we assign to each uh, PM. Uh, each PM has then to adhere to the individual parameters uh, assigned to them. Uh, and, and we use in-house built systems to monitor each PM's performance and his uh, her portfolio exposures and risk. Uh, and in, in terms of leverage, again, you know, that's also defined within uh, each PM's mandate. Uh, and again, monitored, consolidated, uh, and, uh, and consolidated at an overall uh, uh, fund level as well. So obviously your firm is very focused on the APAC region, but you know the, the global macro economy affects um, much of that trading as well. How would you compare to sort of when you look at sort of the, the macro events taking place in APAC versus the rest of the global economy? Maybe you could just sort of reflect on that and give us your perspective on what's going on currently. Sure. Uh, it's, um, I'd say the... Opportunity sets uh, is 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 ripe, uh, you know, across the uh, Asia Pacific region. Um, uh, I expect that to be. Firstly, I expect that to be monetary policy divergence uh, between uh, Asia and uh, the rest of the developed global markets. Uh, maybe to illustrate further, I expect, aside from Japan, uh, I expect uh, the larger developed Asian economies or countries to uh, ease rates while developed countries like uh, the US, Europe or the UK uh, either uh, has uh, interest rates that remain high or even continue uh, to raise uh, rates. Few reasons for that. Um, firstly, you know the the inflation trend in Asia uh, is uh, on the downturn compared to uh, many of the developed uh, countries uh, in in the West. Uh, the within Asia, the focus is on growth, uh, or rather switching to growth uh, than compared to inflation. Um, uh, I the only country that I I think uh, within Asia Pacific that stands out uh, is Japan, where I expect uh, at some stage the normalization of uh, monetary policy. I expect uh, the, the, the exiting of the U-curve control policy to be imminent. Uh, 
uh, and uh, aside from Japan, the, the rest of Asia, uh, my expectation is for rates to uh, come lower. Uh, in terms of opportunities, uh, you know, across across the region, so I think Japan um, you know, coming out from yield curve control uh, can result in opportunities across all asset classes as global investors, you know, increase uh, the allocations to to Japan. Uh, within China, we, we we're hearing lots of um, talk of uh, continued uh, stimulus uh, from China, and I think the the stimulus will come in a few forms, uh, uh, monetary policy, so rate cuts, uh, uh, and as well as uh, fiscal uh, measures, uh, per perhaps, you know, fiscal measures uh, in the housing market uh, to, you know, to, um, to try to uh, improve the uh, housing market situation uh, in, uh, in, in China. Uh, we are Cautiously optimistic uh, for China, especially in the second half of uh, this year, uh, on the back of the ex expected uh, stimulus, uh, and um, uh, we are uh, in terms of the asset classes that uh, could potentially benefit uh, from uh, this this overall divergence uh, of uh, Asia monetary policy to uh, the rest of the world. Uh, I expect. Um, uh, equities uh, to, to benefit. I expect strategies relating to uh, macro and relative value to uh, benefit as well. Uh, in terms of tail risk, that's it. In terms of tail risk, uh, we see uh, El Nino as, uh, as a potential uh, inflation tail risk uh, for Asia. Uh, as of now, just looking at uh, some of our research and the data that, that, that we have, uh, the probability of uh, El Nino uh, is quite high, uh, uh, starting around uh, later part of this year, lasting through to 2024. Uh, and uh, depending on how severe the effect is, the potential higher temperatures, reduced rainfall could cause a few countries within Asia, Southeast Asia and India specifically, uh, to uh, to experience you know higher inflation as a result of of, of that, um, but again you know that that's a potential risk to the scenarios uh, that I described. Yeah. Very comprehensive, Mark. And if you were to um, bring your lens out and bring it wider in terms of the global economy, I think I understand. I I think I'm I uh, suspect what your answer is going to be, but looking at the US, the UK and the EU and what we've had in the last 12 to 18 months is this higher level of inflation. Asia Pacific not immune to that and, and, have, and have experienced it um, probably in the first round when it comes to global inflation picking up. So what do you then think will be the new norm for inflation in these regions? Um, are we likely to see a hard or a soft landing in these economies? I think Generally, I expect a soft landing. That said, I expect we expect inflation in these regions to be structurally higher, and over the long run, uh, structurally higher versus pre-COVID levels. Uh, a few reasons for that. Uh, we all know that you know the world has has been going through what I call regionalization and deglobalization. The effects of this uh, is actually in inflationary. Uh, for example, we see this shift to uh, high resilience supply chain uh, policy or practices. That's going to cause firms to shift away from cost-efficient Asian manufacturing sites uh, and uh, you know, setting up uh, factories, uh, for example, moving factories uh, set away from Asia, setting them up in the U.S. will involve uh, increased costs. Um, the the onshoring uh, of of uh, businesses uh, back to the U.S. or even the developed countries or developed markets will involve hiring workers. Uh, of uh, higher wages, uh, and all this is going to lead to higher inflation because costs gets passed through to uh, the cons consumer. Um, 
furthermore, we're also hearing this free movement of labor being uh, more restrictive generally post-COVID. Uh, we have seen numbers uh, in countries such as US and UK seeing net immigration numbers fall uh, post-COVID, contributing to labor shortages uh, in sectors specifically such as uh, trucking and, and, and hospitality, right? Um, so quite a few uh, structural changes that will cause uh, long-term inflation to uh, remain uh, high. Um, governments have, uh, in some of these countries, been trying to counteract interest rate increases through fiscal measures. And we believe that some of these uh, measures are actually inflationary uh, in, in, in nature, right? So in, in UK, uh, we've heard you know, Jeremy Hunt uh, requesting for banks to offer mortgage owners um, some extensions of, uh, you know, of uh, payment, uh, of, of interest rate payments. Uh, uh, in, in the US, uh, we, we have um, extension of student loan uh, payment schemes uh, we have Biden talking about uh, student loan forgiveness programs. You know, if all this gets uh, gets through, uh, this this these acts or measures are all in, inflationary uh, in in nature. Um, I mean, even in the in the manufacturing uh, sector uh, in the U.S., uh, we have the Inflation Reduction Act or the Chips Act. Uh, that's caused this manufacturing construction boom, uh, and that is also inflationary. So some of these examples I've, I've, I've mentioned uh, to me uh, indicate that specific to these uh, regions, you know, UA, the US, the UK, EU, uh, we, we, we expect structurally higher inflation uh, over the longer run. And um, Mark, you can't have alpha, you can't have outperformance without having the best people, right? So how do you then attract and retain the best people for your firm? Yes. Uh, in, in addition to competitive payouts, uh, which you know, everyone is, is, uh, um, is dangling in front of the PMs, I think it's about creating an environment that makes everyone feel a strong sense of belonging and belief uh, that they can ma maximize their potential being with Diamond. Right. Some reasons and feedback uh, that we've heard from our PMs uh, who have either chosen to join us or chosen to stay with us uh, include the following, right? Uh, PMs seem to like the fact that uh, the decision-making uh, autonomy uh, is in Asia, as in the whole management team is based here, and um, it allows us to maintain a close relationship with our PMs uh, uh, in, with, you know, within our Asian locations. Uh, we have an experienced uh, ICE investment committee uh, and uh, because we understand our markets and our people well, we have the ability to uh, customize risk mandates to cater to the individual needs and styles of our portfolio managers. We've also invested a lot in creating what I call market access solutions across Asia, uh, which allow our PMs to trade or access onshore markets uh, where there's higher liquidity and breadth of uh, instruments to trade and accessing some of these local markets essentially allows our portfolio managers to fully deploy their trading strategies and extract you know, more alpha from the markets. Uh, and in line with what I mentioned earlier about our specialist model, uh, we've actually set up uh, office locations uh, across some of the key markets that we trade in. 
as of now, we, we have offices in Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Japan, you know, China, and, and, and India uh, as well. Again, having the ability to allow our PMs to be based uh, you know, across uh, some of these local markets uh, allows them direct uh, access to that network uh, to, to their local contacts, uh, which again, you know, uh, helps to uh, develop uh, uh, an edge for them. Uh, finally, uh, we've also heard that uh, our PMs really like uh, our collab collaborative uh, culture and environment, uh, where we, we encourage a lot of sharing of uh, information and ideas uh, as well. KPMG is a global professional services firm providing audit, tax, and advisory services to many of the world's leading alternative investment management firms. To address the specific challenges and opportunities unique to alternative investments, KPMG has dedicated practitioners focusing on hedge fund, private equity, and real estate organizations. Our professionals devote their time to provide innovative and strategic solutions to alternative investment managers in areas ranging from strategy to operational and compliance functions. Through the knowledge of the industry-leading practices and customized technology systems, they provide advice and support that deliver value to these organizations and their investors. For more information, please visit kpmg.com. So, so Mark, I mean, in, in the environment that you just described, you do have teams working in different locations nonetheless. The, the multi-strat approach, by definition, um, is, going to, is going to allow for that. Um, how do you match your culture, right, right to uh, enable that to, you know, you know go over the various regions and, 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 and able to, to uh, embrace these folks wherever they are? Sure. So we have regular meetings, uh, albeit you know virtual, because uh, the meetings are, 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 I guess, across the region. Uh, but uh, we have weekly meetings where PMs get together to share uh, views. Uh, we we uh, have um, you know the management team regularly traveling across you know, the various locations to ensure that uh, there's a lot of connectivity between the, the, the PMs uh, and the management team. Uh, and also you know, in terms of establishing or fostering uh, stronger uh, relationships uh, with across PMs and across uh, the teams, uh, we even hold uh, PM uh, offsite uh, meetings uh, whereby we, you know, create opportunities for PMs to all travel to a country uh, to ensure that there is, uh, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, physical uh, interactions. And, and what about other positions besides the sort of the portfolio teams and maybe the research analysts, the technology folks? What are the most difficult positions to uh, attain these days? Yeah, it's um, it's changed over the years. I'd say. Uh, up to as recent as three, four years back, uh, we had a challenge in uh, in sourcing for compliance uh, uh, talent, uh, and that was when we had this whole slew of regulations that uh, you know global regulations that uh, uh, financial institutions had to adhere to, and suddenly you know there was this whole shortage of compliance uh, talent. Uh, I, I, we're past that now, and then I think that's moved to uh, now uh, a, a war for talent for, uh, I'd say, uh, quant uh, or data and quant specialists or quant developers. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, again, I guess in line with some of the big uh, global themes across the world, right? And, and the, 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 uh, the, there is a big demand for uh, data and quant specialists now. So can you give us a sense then of how aggressive, because we read about it and we hear about it and John tells you about it, particularly in the US and I hear about it through our members who you know are headhunters in the industry, what's happening in, in Europe and the UK is how aggressive the war on talent is. Is it the same in Asia Pacific? You talked about 
those areas of focus being an area that are being keenly sought after. But can you give a sense to the listeners of how aggressive that war of talent is? Yeah, I think it's very pronounced, or rather it's more pronounced in the investment uh, professional uh, investment space. Uh, we it, it's, it's been heating up over the last few years uh, and, and continuing. Uh, essentially, uh, we're seeing a lot of competition from global multi-strat funds expanding into Asia. Uh, and you know, it's a topic that we spend a lot of time discussing. Uh, on on the best ways and and ideas to hire and retain our best uh, people. Uh, glad to say that we're ho- we're more than holding our own against our larger uh, com- competitors. Uh, but essentially, uh, to to the few points I mentioned uh, earlier, it's to us our belief is that uh, we need to be as long as we're able to create an environment that that. Uh, fosters a, a, a strong sense of uh, belonging uh, and, and that when PMs feel that when they, when they join us, they're able to uh, deploy that strategy and maximize the, the alpha generation. Uh, and, and at the same time, we create a, you know, a, a, an attractive uh, culture um, uh, you know, that, that we believe would help us differentiate ourselves uh, against uh, the competition. Uh, but we expect this war for talent to continue uh, and um, you know, we're, we're ready for that. So Mark, why did Danny then decide to make a leadership change at Diamond? Is this part of a wider succession plan being put in place there? Yes, we have indeed taken significant steps to put a robust succession plan in place. Uh, this strategic plan has been in the making for several years now, uh, and, and Danny had a clear vision to uh, groom or bring up the next generation of, of leaders. And this uh, initiative took shape, uh, I believe, shortly after he co-authored that piece with Ama, uh, I think back in uh, 2018. That's right, yeah, perspectives, yeah. The, the focus uh, on, on, on developing leadership potential and, and preparing successes uh, for, for key roles has been a, a fundamental aspect of our overall uh, growth uh, strategy. So in January of 2021, uh, Danny made a significant promotion by uh, appointing Sean Yuan as deputy CIO, uh, recognizing his, his talent and, and leadership capabilities. Uh, and then uh, um, recently in, in September of 2022, Sean was further elevated to co-CIO, assuming a, a, an even more prominent role in shaping our investment uh, strategies and uh, decisions. Uh, similarly, I've been working closely with Danny in the running of the firm over the past few years, uh, and our collab- collaborative uh, efforts have resulted uh, in a strong partnership. Uh, and in January earlier this year, I was appointed co-CEO alongside him, uh, and, and we believe this step solidifies our joint commitment to steering Diamond towards uh, a more successful and uh, uh, longer-term future. With the formation of this new management team, uh, we bring in uh, fresh perspectives uh, and and innovative ideas to to lead the firm uh, into this next phase of of, uh, planned growth. Uh, And uh, happy to say the transition has been uh, seamless uh, thanks to regular engagement uh, and, and clear delineation of roles and responsibilities. Uh, each of uh, each of the members uh, within our management team understands uh, our specific roles, uh, and and I believe you know thereby uh, we're able to contribute to a well coordinated uh, and and cohesive uh, leadership uh, approach. And then Danny, you know, with his vast uh, experience and expertise, now plays uh, a crucial role as advisor to this leadership team. Uh, he provides uh, invaluable insights, sharing his views on how he would approach uh, various aspects of the business uh, and uh, highlighting potential risks and opportunities uh, as as he interprets them. We've adopted this approach across various parts of our business uh, as we believe having a strong succession plan and and fostering a culture of mentorship uh, will allow us to ensure continuity and, and stability within the organization. 
uh, as we continue to grow into the future. I would also assume that the stability from a, a, an idea of structurally in succession, w what is occurring there, is helpful to your PMs too or, or around, the, around the globe uh, in knowing that there's stability at the firm. Totally agree. Totally agree. And essentially, you know, the, uh, our, the message we want to send to our PMs uh, and the PMs, uh, there are other PMs in, in, in other firms, is that uh, you know there is deep bench strength, uh, and uh, that you know we are very uh, easily accessible uh, as well to, to, to our PMs. Hey, Mark, let's just uh, pivot for a moment and talk about some of the industry megatrends that that are affecting investment management and. In particular, sort of the open AI, the 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 focus on technology, to um, and the impact that's going to have on the business, on investments, um, and the economies in general. Sure, I mean this this is the big buzzword, right? And it's uh, something that we've been looking into as well. Uh, I'd say that there are arguments for and against you know, the idea of uh, of generative uh, AI. Uh, the pros uh, include advantages include improved efficiency and productivity uh, because we believe AI can streamline operational processes and crunch large amounts of, of data. Uh, some of the disadvantages or, costs or cons uh, include things like privacy violations, uh, uh, AI bias because you know the AI algorithms are built by humans, so maybe they're built-in biasness. Uh, but overall, I believe AI or generative AI could become game-changing, uh, and I think it's here to stay. Uh, and I believe how it should be used is to augment or enhance human decision making. But not replace it. Is that something that um, Diamond has a strategic view on right now, and are working toward it or studying it? Yes, uh, I can. I can share that uh, we've actually on our side uh, started a a an experiment or proof of concept on, on this. Uh, literally, this this trial or experiment is expected to end uh, later this month. Uh, we're doing this firstly in our day-to-day -day, uh, non-investment operations uh, processes, where I believe is uh, most of the low-hanging fruit. Uh, but for now, uh, on the investment side, we I, I can see use cases, particularly in research. Um, but as for using AI to generate trade ideas or trade signals, uh, more work needs to be done here uh, and uh, you know it, it's going to we're, we're just starting out uh, and I think this this project or initiative uh, will have legs uh, but it's going to take a while for us to you know work through the various uh, ideas that we have uh, but for now the, the the target area is uh, using AI or deploying AI on the non-investment side of our business as a start and, and you referenced the pursuit of data scientists and and um, people who have a skill set in quantitative engineering and advanced maths. So when you think about generative AI and the impact on your firm, um, are you looking then to people in that industry uh, to help you to get understand generative AI, thinking about maybe using it, the platforms that are out there or looking to have some sort of a proprietary uh, platform which leverages off the open source. Uh, what what's your thought process, or is it still too soon? Are you still very much in the ex exploration stage? Um, yeah, I mean this. We we are in our ex in the exploration exploratory uh, phase for now. But that said, I imagine that uh, if and when we do embark on this uh, properly, uh, the the type of talent that we'll be looking to bring in would be uh, would be the ones you, you, you've described, right? people who've got uh, strong coding, quant, uh, numerical backgrounds, 
uh, who would be able to help us uh, translate a lot of our ideas and to, and to incorporate AI into our ideas. Uh, and the way to do that, we would need uh, talent to, to come in and help us do that integration. Mark, uh, looking at another mega trend, thinking about ESG and sustainable investment, if I was to ask you as to how you view that through the lens of your firm's investment strategy and what investors expect from you, well, what thoughts have you got on that? Sure, sure. Uh, at, at Diamond, we take ESG uh, seriously. We've integrated them into our investment process where practical to align with our firm's uh, strategy. And I think like everyone else, it's been a journey of uh, learning how to incorporate investment ESG in a practical manner uh, that does not lose sight of helping our investors achieve the best risk adjusted returns uh, for the capital that we manage on their behalf. Uh, our, our primary approach across all asset classes and strategies is the integration of material ESG risks and opportunities as one of the uh, factors in our uh, overall investment process uh, where relevant. Uh, I'll, I'll illustrate by sharing a few uh, key points uh, on, on how we approach uh, this ESG integration. Firstly, we, we prioritize awareness, uh, which is to ensure all our investment professionals are well informed about our ESG integration uh, and each of of our uh, investment uh, staff uh, receives a copy of our comprehensive uh, ESG policy. Uh, next, uh, we, we've got ESG, an ESG assessment for new joiners. Uh, new team when new team members are required to complete an ESG assessment form when they start with us. And additionally, you know, existing portfolio managers will fill out this form uh, on an annual basis. And, and, and we believe this practice allows us to continuously gauge our ESG focus across our whole investment team. Uh, next, there is uh, tailored training where we provide specific training on what constitutes material ESG factors and their relevance based on the investment strategies of our PMs. So for instance, uh, PMs focusing on FX and rates trading uh, might have shorter holding periods and as such may have different considerations from other PMs who trade you know, corporate securities with uh, longer term uh, views. Uh, and, and, we, and we tailor make the, the, the training accordingly. Uh, we also have uh, the concept of uh, portfolio ESG scorecards, uh, more relevant to uh, equity PMs, uh, where they will receive their portfolio's ESG scorecard to track and measure uh, ESG performance, enabling them to make informed decisions with a sustainability uh, lens. Uh, last but not least, uh, commitment to ongoing learning. Uh, we believe that staying informed about the latest developments is crucial. Therefore, we conduct annual ESG training for our investment teams to deepen their understanding uh, and uh, expertise. Now, obviously, ESG factors are going to come into play more in some strategies versus others, right? So um, maybe you could just describe the sort of the disparate um, impact that it has across the firm and how do you get all your, your portfolio managers to concur on, an, on the ESG strategy that is nevertheless transparent across all portfolios? Yeah, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach uh, that, we, that we take, right? So, for example, uh, you know, there are certain um, challenges or, or approaches that we take uh, which might be more reasonable in a certain asset class and not so practical uh, in, in, in another asset class. For example, when you trade foreign exchange, you know, how, how do we even apply any ESG uh, uh, framework to trading foreign exchange, uh, which is quite different from when, let's say, you trade single name equities, right? We'll be able to have an ESG score at a company level, and that can be easily incorporated in a PM's uh, investment process. So what we've tried to, uh, how we've tried to approach it is to take a practical 
uh, approach uh, whereby where possible if we're able to uh, implement an ESG framework to an asset class a strategy or an instrument type we would then do so uh, where in you know certain uh, markets or in certain strategies or, or uh, products uh, that it is impractical to do so, then we would say, hey, you know, PM, you, you don't need to incorporate an ESG, uh, uh, ESG uh, factors uh, when, making invest, uh, when making investment decisions around, let's say, trading foreign exchange, right? So we, we, we've tried to be quite... Um, uh, we, we didn't want to. We, we didn't want to take a generic approach uh, across you know all our PMs and all our strategies. So moving to the last couple of questions, then Mark, and, and this has been fascinating. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, thinking now about uh, your perspectives um, for for the industry at large, we've been asking guests to rank on a scale of one to five. Would five be the most optimistic? How optimistic? you are about the hedge fund industry over the coming five years when thinking about delivering for clients what what would your score be and why yeah i'd say four uh given what i shared previously about opportunity sets specifically in asia i think that you know lots uh, lots of alpha uh generating uh opportunities across the various uh, countries uh in asia pacific um, but that's a risk. I, I, I see the risk as if global interest rates continue to rise, that at some stage it could become more challenging for certain types of strategies. Uh, uh, yeah, certain types of strategies. And where would you see sort of the biggest opportunities for the industry at large and and maybe some of the headwinds that we're, we're also about to face, whether they be investment related or non-investment related. Yeah, I mean, for us, I, I'd say Asia continues to be the region which uh, I, I see as very interesting and exciting. Uh, again, for the same reasons I mentioned earlier, uh, but I'd say the headwind or perhaps risk is east-west political tensions resulting in either regulatory or policy changes uh, that might have negative effects on our ability to invest or generate alpha. Uh, and by that, I think that that's a real tail risk uh, and that tail risk of Asia becoming uninvestable. Uh, that's not, uh, you know, it, it's not my base case, you know, it, it, is, it is a very, very small tail risk. So what advice then would you give to any industry newcomers that might want to set up a hedge fund in this climate? Don't do it. Go ahead. Uh, good question. Uh, it's, it's not easy. You know, in, investing is very different from running a business and it's not easy to do both well. The skill set that's required to set up and run a fund is very different from a, a typical uh, portfolio manager skill set that, you know, that, that's focused on investing and generating alpha. Uh, there's, there is a lot of work uh, and very high cost when it comes to setting up a fund and, and, and running the business in the first two years, you know, the, the you would need to spend a lot of uh, one's time on non-investment related work like hiring staff, uh, fitting out an office, you know, drafting policy, uh, or at least reading the drafts if if you've got luxury of hiring a very good legal and compliance officer. Um, you need to read enormous amounts of emails that are not related to investing. Right, like emails from regulators, uh, from the accountants, auditors, the landlord. Uh, you you will need to spend time fundraising, meeting with prospective investors who might you know, come, be, be based in various parts of the world, uh, and of course that will take up a lot of uh, one's uh, time. Uh, 
which means that you're not focusing on your investment process and all these distractions will invariably lead to, uh, uh, will have a negative impact on, on performance, which is why multi-strategy funds or platforms have teams of people taking care of all of that so that our PMs can focus on investing. Uh, and we tell our PMs that we provide a setup that allows them to focus only on investing and, and they leave all the non-investment related uh, stuff to us to take care of. And clearly you're, you're enjoying it, Mark, and um, every success with it um, going forward. Uh, just one last question from me. I mean, you're at the top of your field, still clearly working very hard and delivering for your clients. What's still then on the list for you professionally and, um, you know, outside of work? You know, what, what sort of pursuits do you have outside of work? Uh, I'd say on the professional front, my focus is on continuing to enhance our offering. Uh, so as to deliver higher quality and, and consistent results for our investors. Uh, on, the, on the personal front, I'm passionate about and have been involved in causes relating to education, the youth uh, and, and the elderly. And I would like to continue to contribute and, and make a bigger impact uh, in, in these areas. Any chance for relaxation? Read a good book. What's what's on Mark's reading list these days? <laughs> uh, I'm actually rereading *The Unfettered Soul* by Michael A. Singer. Uh, this book describes how to unchain ourselves from our ego, harness our inner energy, and connect with our inner self. And the idea here is, with with this connection, we expand. Um, we're able to expand our awareness and achieve spiritual growth. Um, my, my mom passed away earlier this year and, and our family is still uh, coping and grieving in our own ways. And I'd say reading this book, rereading this book has helped with my grieving process and it's reminded me about the values imparted to me by my mother and my life purpose. Uh, which, which is to make a positive difference in, in everything I do. Well, Mark, this has been a fascinating conversation, and um, you know, we we applaud you for joining us this this morning. Um, thanks for sharing all your views, Tom. Your thoughts? Yeah, every good wish, Mark. Thanks again, and um, hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Perspectives done in partnership with KPMG and part of Amos, the Long Short Podcast. We trust you found the discussion both interesting and insightful. You can get the latest episodes by subscribing to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, or streaming directly from ama.org. Thanks for listening.